Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. For the majority of our time this morning, we were going to chapter 19, and um, we should be okay. Well, towards the end, we'll go to one more passage of Scripture. But some of you have been coming to me and talking with me and saying that you were glad that I mentioned to bring your Bibles. And so, I remember I told you the story when I began pastoring in the 90s. I would say, grab your Bibles and turn to a certain page, and I would hear paper. All over the place. Yes. Oh, it's a glorious sound for a pastor. So some of you have entertained me with that and let me hear paper, but I'm glad you're there. Now I've given you a, a few moments to turn to that passage. You know, we're continuing our service this morning, or our series this morning, excuse me, Responding to Jesus. And the second message is entitled False Peace, because I've noticed that something happens in my life when in my response to Jesus in regards to peace. When I respond rightly to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life and how he's leading me and how he's working in my life and how he chooses to operate in the world, as I respond rightly to that, it then results in my peace. And then when I have peace in my heart because there's peace between me and Jesus, that peace then flows into my home. And I have some peace with my, with my wife and my children and grandchildren. And then from there it will flow into my leadership of the church. And if I have peace with Jesus because I'm rightly responding, it'll flow from my heart and my home into the church and then prayerfully into the larger portion of society in which we operate on a daily basis, right? But it all begins with that sense of peace that I've rightly responded to what Jesus is doing in my life and I can't tell you that I'm always perfect in that. A lot of times Jesus has to work a lot on my heart getting me to the place where I'm rightly responding with him and because it's easier to tell stories about other pastors I'll share than myself, I'll share one with you briefly this morning. A friend of mine is in this space that he's dealing with in regards to rightly responding with how Jesus is leading him and how Jesus is leading his ministry, where he might feel a little unsettled where he is, and then he begins to kind of look and think, okay, is the Lord, like, what's the Lord doing in my life? And there's a season of, of newness in the church that he's pastoring, but then he gets calls from other places that, hey, would you think about coming here to be the pastor over here? And he's like, well, what is Jesus telling me, like, to do? And I was praying with him and talking with him. Actually, right before our service started, I shot him a little message. Hey, man, I know this is going on in your life, praying for you. Um, my church starts in like 30 minutes. But I just wanted to say, as I prepare to preach and lead our congregation, I'm praying for you this morning. And so God is doing a lot of good things in his life. I personally think he's got a wonderful setup, and God has led in his leadership and, and doing great things. But sometimes he gets distracted. Sometimes we all do. And just in that position of him responding to however God leads in his ministry will bring him peace. And so as I've been praying with him and talking to him this week, he said that it's helping him stay more centered. Because when you start responding to Jesus in unhealthy ways, it feels like your life becomes off-center. And each one of us are responding to Jesus in one way or another. I don't know exactly what Jesus is doing in your life, but you're responding to him. Because he is actively working in your life, he's doing things in your life, even when, as the song says, you don't see it or you don't feel it. But he is working in your lives, he's speaking into your lives and how you are responding to him. And if you're a normal human being, you probably don't get it right all the time, do you? Sometimes Jesus operates, as we're going to see in the text today, Jesus operates in ways that the optics kind of look weird. <laughs> it's like what you see him doing and what you see in the world and you're just like, you're confusing me. Jesus, you're, by, by what you're doing. And so as we open this text, we are celebrating, for those of you that are aware of the church calendar, today is Palm Sunday, right? It is, and why do we call it 
Palm Sunday. Well, we call it Palm Sunday because of this event that took place as Jesus was moving into Jerusalem. As Jesus was moving into, the, into Jerusalem, what maybe you could do is place yourself in the crowd and just kind of watching this and seeing what the crowd is doing and seeing what Jesus is doing and then kind of his disciples thinking about what Jesus had just been teaching on and now what he's doing. Everybody was confused. The first Palm Sunday was not a celebration. And they were not looking forward to next Sunday going, hey, Easter Sunday, this is going to be amazing. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, great stuff. They were utterly confused about everything that God was doing in their day and their time. And as they watched Jesus, they weren't quite sure. At one moment, they're praising him. and another moment, they're going, what? Wait, I don't quite know what to do. I'm praising him. Is this right? Or should I be doing something else? So in our efforts to respond to Jesus rightly, I want to talk to you about this one overarching theme this morning. And it is this. Jesus brings peace by condemning those things that form a false peace. That's what he's going to do in the text, and that's what he does in your life. So if you're depending on something or someone that Jesus has no interest in you trusting, if you're saying, I have peace because gas prices came down two cents, not a real good source of peace. They go up 40, down two. Have you noticed the theme? And somehow we celebrate on the news that they went down 10 cent or two cents. I, I don't understand. A lot of confusion. A lot of chaos. A lot of questions. And so if you're putting your, fa- your, your peace in anything that will bring you a false peace, Jesus is going to condemn that and remove that from your life because he wants you to experience real peace. Real peace is the goal. So, as we begin this text, you'll notice right away at least if you don't notice, I'll help you understand, that there are at least present in the text two sources of false peace identified in Luke chapter 19. We'll pick up the story in the middle, and then we'll go back to the beginning and then carry it all the way through is how we'll progress through the text. Because you'll notice in verse 28, if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll notice this. And when he, Jesus, said these things, we'll talk about that in a second, he went on ahead of them. Going into Jerusalem, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you and where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone else asks you what you are doing by untying it, you shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, very key, of his disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had done, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As we look at this text, 
if you were reading, if you are as you are today, reading it from the 21st century, you're viewing this as this massive celebration, right? They're finally getting it. I mean, they're in tune. I mean, the religious leaders are out to lunch, but the, the crowd of the disciples, these people have been following Jesus. They're seeing the magnificent works that Jesus had done, and now they're worshiping and praising him for it. And as he comes into town riding on a donkey, they then respond in like fashion what everybody would respond if they believed their king was coming home on a donkey. Because a king comes home on a donkey, and you believe our king is coming home with peace. That was the symbol. That's what Jesus was saying. If a king rode into town on a horse, it means war. If he rides into town on a donkey, he means peace. So here he comes after doing all of these magnificent things. They're thinking, finally, our Messiah has arrived after generation upon generation upon generation that this Jesus is now finally fulfilling all that we had hoped the Messiah would ever fulfill. These that know their Old Testament prophecies, those that have been watching Jesus' life, listening to his teachings, they're thinking, finally, this is the time. And here he comes. See, he's bringing the long-awaited peace. And so they bring out the palm branches, which is symbolic of worshiping the one that brings peace and the one that has victory. So he's riding on a donkey singing, I'm the winner. <laughs> I've conquered everything and I'm coming home and I'm bringing peace to our city. And they're saying, he's victorious and so we're going to wave palm branches. And you would be seeing this and witnessing this. But in your heart of hearts, you would be trusting two things as a Jewish first century believer in God. You'd be trusting, one, your ability to provide ritual cleanliness for yourself based on following all the rules. Because you knew all the prophecies and you were in Jerusalem as they approached the Passover, you would come with your offering. You had come to do what generations upon generations upon generations of your family members have been doing and your ability to bring the right offering to the temple during Passover was the means by which you were keeping peace with God. And if you couldn't do that, you felt at odds. In fact, there was kind of like this means by which, depending on your wealth, you would bring the sacrifice. If you were wealthy, you were bringing this beautiful lamb. If you were really poor, you were bringing a two-cent pigeon. And you would come and you would have your lamb. Oh, yes. I, see, I'm wealthy and I can bring my little lamb and it is going to be perfect. And those that are in the temple checking these things out, making sure it's flawless, making sure it doesn't have a blemish, I'm good. I could bring the best of the best lambs. I'm here. Can everybody see my wonderful lamb as I come to Passover? And if you had a little two-cent pigeon, you'd be thinking, oh, I hope no one sees me today. But I can still get peace between me and God. Everybody else knows that I'm poor, but God will be okay with me. And our ability to bring an offering to God and satisfy the rituals of the day formed this peace or disruption of peace. They also had something else that they would establish their peace on, and that was this glorious temple that they were coming to. The temple of Jerusalem was their source of national identity. It's what set them apart for all, from all other nations. It's a place where God had promised that He would dwell physically with His people in the temple. And as they were, had the ability to bring their perfect offering and go to the perfect place where God had set in order, they were fine. They were at peace. But there was a disruption of the peace. Because Rome was in charge of all that part of the world. 
And they knew that as long as they paid their taxes to Rome, there would be the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, as it was called. So it was about this peace. And if I could do all the right things and follow all the right rules, I'll be at peace with God. If I could bring the right offering, I'll let everybody know that, hey, I'm bringing a lamb. I'll hide if I bring a pigeon. But between me and God, peace. And we've got this glorious temple that no one else has to where the creator of all the universe has promised to literally dwell among us. Aren't we special? And this is our peace and this is our identity and this is our culture. And Jesus is saying, hmm, no. <laughs> but everything as he was riding in the donkey, you're thinking, this is, this, is, this is amazing. My offering, my temple, my coming king, this is amazing. But those are false senses of peace. And you would notice that if Jesus began to operate in this week that, he, that we're looking at, you would start to wonder, what is he doing? I brought the right offering, and we have the right building, and we have the right king. Well, why is he acting like this? Jesus, starting in verse 41, he says, And when he, so the whole worship place is breaking out. They're praising him. They're waving the palm branches. It's a party in Jesus in verse 31. And when he drew near to the city... Jerusalem he wept over it now you would think as a observer of the situation party building offering everybody's at peace this is wonderful we're assuming we've paid our taxes so Rome isn't invading us this is wonderful here he comes and Jesus just breaks out in tears and you're like what is he crying about are those happy tears doesn't look like it <laughs> Looks like he's kind of upset about this whole scene. And then he says this in verse 32, as Luke has recorded for us, saying, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But Jesus, we do. We got the right offering and the right building, and you're riding a donkey, and we're waving palm branches. And, and Jesus goes, if you would have only knew, known what would make for your peace. Because it's not the palm branches and it's not the offering and it's not the building. Jesus is saying you've totally missed it. You have all these things that build this false peace in you. And then he goes on. Known this day the things that make for your peace, but now are hidden from your eyes. For in the days will come upon you when your enemy, that's Rome, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and they'll surround and hem you in on every side. And they'll tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone, speaking of the temple, upon one another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. But we know the time of our visitation. We've got the lamb and we've got the pigeons and we've got the building and we've got the palm branches and we've got the whole thing, Jesus. And he's like, I know. But this breaks my heart because you don't understand the visitation and then he speaks of something that'll happen this is roughly ad 33 to 35 right here jesus speaks of a time about 35 years later ad 70 when rome gets tired of the christians and tired of the jews blames the jews for what's taking place in the city of rome and they come down and they destroy jerusalem and they destroy the temple and it has yet to be built, rebuilt to this day. Literally, Jesus, in one 
statement says everything that you're trusting on for your peace your ability to bring a sacrifice and your ability to look at the right building and your ability to have all of this it's all going to be gone within 35 years And not only that, then Jesus in verse 45, he says, walks in and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold. Saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he sent his teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the, fair, and the principal men of the people were asking to destroy him. That was their response. So the response, worship him. He comes in crying. The whole thing's a mess. He goes in and he says, you guys have made my church just a disaster. Let's get rid of this dude. It's now time to kill him. We've got to get rid of him. He's causing a disruption. He's removing the things that cause our peace. Because we have peace when we bring the right offering to God. We have peace when we get in the right building with God. And he's disrupting all of that. And the response, get rid of him. Now, that's the setting here. Those are the two sources of false peace. So how was Jesus then bringing peace? If their false sense of peace was based on the ability to stay ritually pure and have the right location where God promised to dwell, the temple, and Jesus is saying all that's going to be destroyed. Remember I told you when we started reading this, verse 28 said, and when he had said these things, so the question of how did Jesus bring peace he brought it by judging these things, these two things. Judging their system of sacrifice and their temple by saying the temple was going to be destroyed. So, back up for a second because it says in verse 28, and when he had said these things, what things? What things? Back up to verse 1 of chapter 19 where you find the context. It is here in verses 1 through 10 that he forgave this guy Zacchaeus. Now we know that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? Because we've sung this song in Sunday school. And we know that he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And we know all of that. But what was really going on with Zacchaeus? You see, Jesus was destroying their false sense of peace by taking someone and forgiving someone that didn't have the right offering and that had done everything wrong. He was a traitor and a thief and a rebel. And Jesus forgave him. Notice in verses 1 through 10. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Chief tax collector. That means that he had traded his whole family. He had rejected and he started working for Rome. And he started becoming wealthy because Rome, this is what, if you are a Jew and you became a tax collector, you had to take and receive tax, taxes from your Jewish people, but let's say the Romans told you you got to collect 100 bucks. You can collect anything, and they had to give it. So if Rome said 100 bucks for everyone that passes through this way, fine, I set up my little tax booth, and as you walk by, I say 1,000 bucks. And you're like, dang, bro, 1,000 bucks? Yep, 1,000 bucks. 100 goes off to Rome, 900 in my pocket. Next, 1,000 bucks. 2,000 bucks, 5,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks, doesn't matter. Charge whatever you want. Rome just says, give me the hundred. And he's ripping off his people and getting wealthy by ripping off his own people with taxes. And he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was, excuse me. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. 
So we ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. And everybody in the crowd went, what? Stay at that guy's house? No way. Not that guy. He doesn't have the right offering. He doesn't go to the right place. He has nothing going on in his life that would even come close to having peace with God. But Jesus, you say you're going to go into his house. So he hurried and came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they, were all, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the Lord, half of all my goods I'll give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, since he also is a son of Abraham and the son of a man who came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is destroying their system of if I give the right offering and I go to the right place, I have peace with God. Jesus is like, nope. Nope. If you respond to me in worship, you'll have peace with God. If you allow salvation and you receive the salvation that I bring to you, you will have peace with God. So he forgave Zacchaeus. He also, in verses 11 through 27, and for the sake of time, we won't read that one, but he judges those who reject his reign over them. I want you to read that one on your own. Sorry, teaching for a long time, that's your homework. It's called the, ter- the parable of the minas, or minas, however you want to say that. I think it's minas. <laughs> you read that, and you'll notice, you'll notice, and this is what I want you to pray when you read this scripture. Ask God to help you understand the parable. The parable means this. God came, built everything, withdrew, sent prophets, and they rejected them all, okay? And two of the guys did what they were supposed to, one did not. Two responded right, one didn't. Read that for yourself, pray through it, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. If you have questions after that, let me know. (laughs) That's your assignment, dig into the text, ask the Holy Spirit's help. But you will notice that Jesus is judging those who rejected his reign over them. A third thing that Jesus does in the text that we, that we just read, starting in verse 28, is that he received the praise of those who accepted his authority as the, long, as the long-awaited king. He received that praise, and then he went in, and what did he do? Remember, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were the ones that had a problem with this worship. And he goes in and he judges the way that they've turned the temple into a place of thieves. In verses 41 through 44, as we read, you'll notice that he foretold the coming destruction of Jerusalem, so he's destroying that. And with that, their ability to give the right offering and their ability to go to the right place. And then finally, he judged their treatment of the temple as human beings. So Jesus literally, in this whole text, as he entered into Jerusalem, it was confusing because he was riding in on a donkey and he's saying, here I am, this is like peace. And then he cries, and then he tells them that they missed the day of their visitation, and then they tell them that they've got the temple all wrong. So it looks like he's bringing peace, but he's really bringing judgment. Think about that for a second. We often say that Jesus' first arrival was to bring peace between us and God by dying on a cross. Absolutely. Absolutely, that was why. 
And then we say the next time Jesus' return, he'll come back, as the book of Revelation says, he'll come back riding on a horse to conquer sin and death. Absolutely. Absolutely, he does that. First time, I'm coming to bring peace between you and God. The next time, I'm coming to judge sin and death. Riding on a horse, riding on a donkey, two different scenarios, because riding on a donkey brings peace. Riding on a horse means I've come for war. But in this text, he also condemns what will keep you always away from salvation. Your false premises for peace in your life. And so as you look at this text and pray this through, I pray that you spend some time with it. The challenge becomes this, to rely on the real work of Jesus and give up that which has produced a false peace.